explained uh, what Christ came and did for us, how he fulfilled the Old Testament. And then he indicates he's about to talk about uh, the change that that has in our lives. He mentions uh, the Holy Spirit who comes into our hearts and bears witness to us, uh, saying that uh, the new covenant uh, we read about in in verse uh, 16 involves the Lord uh, filling us with the Holy Spirit and putting his laws, we just read his laws together, putting his laws on their hearts and writing them on our minds. And so these doctrinal truths that we just read, they should transform how we act towards God and others. And now he's going to elaborate further. And we'll see that together in our text, beginning at verse 19 and reading through to verse 25. Therefore, brothers, so based on what we read before, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So far the reading of our text for this afternoon. Brothers and sisters, Last year, for the first time in almost 40 years, something significant happened in the music industry. In the United States, CD sales were overtaken by the sales of vinyl records. Last year, people bought over 33 million CDs, and they bought over 40 million records. Nearly $500 million was still spent on CDs, but about a billion dollars was spent on these old vinyl records. Sometimes we can see in fashion and in life, old ways that were once popular, they, they, they make a comeback. And sometimes this is fine, this is good. I like records. But sometimes old ways shouldn't make a comeback. In 1848, a Hungarian doctor He started investigating why mortality rates among new mothers was extremely high in the hospital that he worked at, especially when at the midwives clinic just down the road, they were much, much lower. And his discovery was that doctors should start washing their hands. After they deal with extremely sick people, as after they deal with dead bodies in many cases, they will go right on over to the maternity ward and begin helping there. His discovery was doctors had to start washing their hands. They were spreading the germs and causing infections. And in his hospital, this new and this better way was tried. And it was tried with spectacular results. The rates of infections and deaths plummeted. But it turns out the doctors and the hospital staff, they didn't like being called dirty 
and told they were to blame for the infections. Eventually, this Hungarian doctor, he was fired, and the other doctors went back to the old way, how they used to work before. It wasn't until many years, decades later, that this doctor's discovery was actually put to good use. Sometimes old ways make a comeback, sometimes even when they really, really shouldn't. And in a sense, this is one of the issues that the author of Hebrews is addressing in this sermon, if you believe that it is a sermon. He is writing to a church where some old ways were making a comeback, the old ways that shouldn't have come back. For these believers in this church he's writing to, life was hard. They were undergoing fierce persecution. And so some of the members just thought, why don't we just go back to how it was before? Why don't we go back to worshiping in the temple? The Jewish, they're not being persecuted like we are. Why don't we go back to the old temple and the old sacrifices? There's something beautiful about that worship, so they thought. Other members, too, they seemingly wanted to go back to their old way of life, not dealing with the hassle of going to church or or fighting against sin, and not dealing with the persecution that came when they met together regularly and publicly. And one of the main points of Hebrews is, don't return to the old ways, but rather realize how great the gift of the new way we have in Christ. Don't go back to the Old Testament ways of worshiping. It's a rejection of the gospel. Don't go back to your old ways of sin and apathy and withdrawing to be on your own. But hold on to the new way, the better way in Jesus Christ. And so in this passage, after nearly 10 chapters explaining how Jesus is better, that's what Hebrews is all about, how Jesus is better than the angels and Moses and the law and all that had come before, the author now turns and he applies the gospel message to our lives. And he commends to us a new way, a better way to live in Jesus Christ. And we'll see this in our text in three parts. Uh, We see very clearly the, the author has three applications for us. And our focus today will primarily be on the third one. But we see he mentions in verse 22, let us draw near. He mentions in verse 23, let us hold on. And he mentions in verse 24 to 25, let us stir up, among other things. Let us draw near, hold on, and stir up. So first of all, let us draw near. And now it's really important that you put yourself in the original reader's shoes for a minute if you can One thing is incredibly clear from this book. The readers had the Old Testament on their mind. They knew the Old Testament scriptures incredibly well, the sacrificial system and everything it entailed. And in verse 22, the preacher says to these people who know the Old Testament so well, let us draw near. In the Old Testament, of course, there are some calls to come to God. We need to remember one of the dominant themes of the Old Testament is actually, in a sense, stay back. Don't come too close. If you think back to the beginning of the Bible, Adam and Eve, and human beings like us, we were the pinnacle of God's amazing creation. And Adam and Eve got to walk with God in the Garden of Eden. But when they fell into sin, what was the message for them? The message was get out and stay back. God, of course, he promised a redeemer and he chose his people and defended and delivered his people like uh, out of, when he brought them out of Egypt, which we just heard referred to 
and the law. Yet at Mount Sinai, when God was giving his people the law, when God met with Moses, what was the message to the rest of the Israelites? In a sense, it was come back to God, but in the other sense, what was it? Stay back. Not too close. If you touch the mountain, you will die. Likewise, soon after this, God gave the tabernacle and then the temple, the place where God would dwell with his people. And yet the message so clearly was always not too close. Keep your distance. The Holy of the Holies was the hot spot of God's presence with his people. And there was a thick curtain keeping everyone away. Only the high priest could go in behind the curtain, and only once a year, and only after sacrifices and washings. You can think of the Old Testament if you know it. There are examples of people disobeying the instructions and coming a little too near. People you might recognize the names of, like Nadab and Abihu, who came near before the Lord and offered unauthorized fire. Or like Uzzah, who reached out and touched the ark. A clear message rang out in these stories, stay back, not that close. This God of the Old Testament and the New Testament, he is too great, he is too holy, and he is too pure. We cannot come too close. And yet, we come to Hebrews. And the authors, the the preacher's first application in Hebrews 10 is a call for their congregation and for you and for me. His application is draw near. Come close. I hope that amazes you. I hope that just astounds us, even though we hear this all the time. God says to you and to me, sinful people, come close. Draw near. More than that, in our text, he says, draw near with confidence. How is that possible? This God who is so holy, how can we come close with confidence? Not even the high priest in the Old Testament came near with confidence. He went near with trembling and with fear and with a heart beating outside out of his chest after washings and sacrifices. Yet in Hebrews 10, we're told, come near and come with confidence. How can we approach this holy God confidently when he reveals so clearly that when people like us, sinful people, draw too close, we should be struck down? The author tells us two reasons in verse 19. He says, we have confidence to enter the holy places By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And secondly, he says, we have a great priest over the house of God. That is, draw near you and me with confidence, because we have something, it says. Because you have Jesus Christ. You have the Messiah. And so you walk into God's presence through him. Enter with confidence, he references, because of what Christ has done for you and because what he is doing for you. He has opened for us a way back to God as was promised from the right after the fall into sin. He took our sin upon himself. 
His body was broken, torn apart. And we read in Hebrews that as it was torn apart, the curtain was torn. And a way for us back to God was opened. And we were sprinkled clean by his blood. More than that, we don't just think of what Jesus was doing before, but what he's doing right now. He is our great high priest now. In God's presence, on your behalf and mine, interceding before the Father, and when we sin, leaping to our defense and advocating on our behalf. With a high priest like Jesus, you go before God, not with pride, not with arrogance, but you go with confidence. Not in who you are, but who Jesus Christ is. That he is that great of a savior. When this priest went into the temple on the people's behalf in the Old Testament, they had confidence when he came out alive that God had accepted them. But your high priest is Jesus Christ, and he never leaves God the Father's presence. And as long as Jesus Christ stands there interceding for you, praying for you, defending you when you fall into sin, you have unshakable confidence. We are perfectly acceptable. And so the application of the sermon from the author of Hebrews is now that you have this at great cost to Jesus Christ, that God reached down to claim you and bring you back, the first application is draw near. Not just when you have a good day or when you have a good week. The shocking truth is you and I can draw near to God and should draw near to God with confidence right after we failed. When we just had an awful day or an awful week or even a horrible month, when we just fell into sin again, again, or even while we're still sinning, we can draw near to God with confidence. And there are different ways to draw near, of course. We can draw near to God through prayer, We can draw near to God through reading the Bible. Uh, We can offer our whole lives, and we're called to, as a sacrifice of service to God, living our whole lives every day in God's presence. But the emphasis here seems to be primarily on drawing near in another way. Throughout the Bible, often this is used as a technical term, drawing near together in worship. What we're doing right here, right now, In response to what Christ has done, come. Come here and worship God with confidence. Not just when you feel spiritually healthy, but even when you know desperately you're spiritually sick. I love what the author says in verse 22. He says, We come before God with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is, we come before God cleansed by Jesus from the inside out. To go back to our hand-washing analogy from before, have you ever worked maybe outside or or at your job? Uh, Or maybe even in the home? Have you ever worked with your hands with something really, really disgusting? Something really gross? And afterwards, as soon as you can, you go and rush and try and wash it all off. But even after you wash your hands two or three or ten times, You know that they're clean. They they must be clean. But yet they feel disgusting. You don't want to touch anything. You don't want to eat anything. You don't want to put them anywhere near you until you wash them 
a few more times until you scrub them a little bit more. Here in this passage, we have great assurance to do the unthinkable, to go before God and to do it even when we feel, feel filthy. Because the good news is through Christ, we're not filthy. We can know and believe that our body and heart and even our conscience has been scrubbed clean by the most potent cleaner, the blood of Jesus Christ. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Even when it doesn't feel like that, even when we look inside and we feel we must be filthy, we must still be dirty. I want to ask this afternoon if you have this confidence today, this confidence when you go before God in prayer or in your life or or in worship. Even if you've been in church for many years, it's possible not really to believe this deep down in your heart. Uh, One well-known Christian writer, uh, he recounts an event where after he had been a Christian uh, for many decades, he had actually written many best-selling books about the Christian faith. But one day, by God's grace, everything changed for him. He finally came to truly believe in his deepest soul that he was clean in Jesus Christ. And it astounded him. It changed his life. For years, he had believed it intellectually. He had believed in the forgiveness of sins. Or as he says, he really believed that he believed it. He had written books about it. He had shared the gospel with others and helped them come to faith. But one day, by God's grace, he really came to believe it with his whole heart. This blessed truth became so clear and so powerful in his life, it changed everything. Finally, in a way like never before, he could go before God even when struggling with sin and temptation. He could go before God his Father with no hidden fear of anger. No hidden fear that maybe God might be unhappy with him, that he might reject him. He could go before his heavenly father, as the author of Hebrews says, with confidence. And his heart sang out in praise. This author, he also mentions that he doesn't just go and praise his God and go in confidence before him alone. He shared this experience with others. And that's an important part of this text in Hebrews. The call to draw near in worship, not just on your own, though absolutely do that too, but draw near in worship together. That's an amazing thing as well. The whole text, if you notice, is written in the first person plural. It's all about us. One preacher talking about this passage asks, what do you think is one of the most devastating effects of sin in this world. What do you think? We can think of so many devastating effects of sin, can't we? Pain and suffering and fear and death. But he says one stands above the rest. He argues that one of the most horrible effects of sin is loneliness. As we heard before in the sermon, because of sin... We were sent away from God. Spiritually, we were isolated in a way we were never created to be. But our sin doesn't just isolate us from God. Our sin rips us apart from one another as well. Think about it. 
when we lie or when we steal or when we cheat. It damages our relationships, not just with God, but with others. When we're prideful or angry, people can start to pull away from us, can't they? Or when we're trapped in sin and shame, then we can start to pull ourselves away from others. We don't want to let them come too close. But to crush all the effects of sin, including loneliness, Christ came. And by his blood, we are told, now we can draw near to God together, not just on our own. Jesus sought us when we were trying to hide, trying to withdraw, when we were isolated. Jesus Christ came to earth and he bore in his body the effects of sin. Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself, became isolated. Jesus was rejected by men. He was rejected by the people of God. He was even uh, forsaken by his disciples and his friends. Ultimately, on the cross, it didn't stop there. Jesus Christ, for your sake and mine, bore deep loneliness we will never need to know. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know why. Because of our sin. Now the call for us, because of what Christ has done, how he freed us from our sin, is draw near. Draw near to God. And draw near to one another. Come together in worship once again. And as Christians, we can draw near to God and one another, humbly acknowledging our sin and weakness and shortcomings. And that's an incredibly wonderful, freeing thing. I remember one of my friends back in Hamilton. I was always amazed by him. He had such a profound faith. He was so willing to go before God and be open with him, with all of his sins and shortcomings. And because he truly believed he was forgiven by God, he was willing to come to us and be open with us about his sins and weaknesses and shortcomings. He would want, he loved us and he would long to live with us. He would draw near to us because he believed in this forgiveness from all his sins. He truly believed his heart, his conscience, his body was sprinkled clean. And that shone through in all of his relationships. And that's what the author of Hebrews is talking about here. In Christ, we're called to this new way of drawing near primarily to God through Christ's body, but also in a profound way with one another. Secondly, we're called together in Christ to hold on. That's our second point. And we'll be here only for a minute because we're told to hold on, to hold firmly to our hope. And if you know Sardis' vision statement, and I trust you all know it perfectly, well then you know that we'll be talking a lot about hope next week. So just a minute on this second point. But in Christ we have a confident hope. The author of the Hebrews tells us, in response together to the gospel, to together hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, because he who promised is faithful. In Christ, we have a confident hope, knowing that God accepts us fully already now, and that he will accept us forever. And this seems like the height of arrogance to say, doesn't it? When we reflect on the holiness of God, and how, in a sense, in the Old Testament, we, it was revealed to us that sinners couldn't come too close on their own. But we can trust that God has and will accept us. And the reason why we have this firm, unshakable hope 
is because God himself took the initiative. God didn't call us to find a way up to heaven. Jesus Christ came down and found us. And so we have an unshakable hope because we know how much God wanted us into his presence. He wanted us in his presence enough that he gave his son for us, for you and for me. I love how it's worded in the song, uh, Save, or Praise the Savior. There we read, All my sin was so contagious, all my failing so outrageous. Says the Savior, I will pay this. I was lost once, full of hate then. If he left us, who could blame him? Says the Savior, I will claim them. Praise the Savior, Jesus. And that, that song we can sing every day gives us an unshakable hope. No matter how much we fail, no matter how bad our day or our week goes, no matter how bad things go at work, no matter how bad they go at school or in the home, we have hope at the end of the day. Unshakable hope. Because Jesus Christ looked on us and loved us and claimed us. And that is something that we have to actively hold on to. Because as the trials of life get in the way, that's what the Hebrews were dealing with. Persecutions, real suffering. There are things being seized. As these things got in the way, they could lose sight of their hope. But the author of the Hebrews says, don't lose sight of it. Hold fast. Whatever comes up in your day, whatever could distract you, don't let it. Hold on tight. Hold fast with two hands. Because the one who promised, Jesus Christ, he is faithful. And so this new way of living in Christ means we draw near to God in Christ through uh, the, the, his flesh. But we also hold on to this hope. And finally, we're told, we stir one another up. That's our third and our final point. And you can see in our text, if you look at it, there's actually a great emphasis on this third let us part of our text in verses 24 and 25. The other commands we were told essentially primarily to do one thing, but here we're told to do, it looks essentially like four. We're told to consider one another. We're told to stir up one another to love and good works. We're told to commit to not to neglect meeting together. And we're told to encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. And so our faith and our hope and love and our confidence in Jesus Christ, it should pour out dramatically to one another as well. That's the second part of our vision statement, loving others. And I wonder if during your life uh, you've ever met someone who is just really extremely considerate. Have you ever had someone who just gives the most thoughtful gifts uh, at your birthday or your anniversary or Christmas? What does it mean to be considerate? It means you know they didn't just run out and grab a gift card at the last second. But rather, they paid attention when you were talking. They, they thought carefully about your needs. They took time out of their day to pick this for you. They were thinking not just about the gift. They were thinking about you, what you would need, what you would like. They put thought into you. And here, the author of Hebrews talks about our flowing out of our love for Jesus Christ to one another. And he says what we're called to do is to consider one another. That means to, to pause to reflect and think carefully and meditate on each other. 
Is that something that we do? So often we don't. That, that's a deeply countercultural thing. To, to live our lives thinking of others first, to, to stop throughout the week, and to carefully consider and meditate on one another. Why would we live in this radical way that seems so unlike anything we've seen before? Well, the answer, of course, is because that's exactly what the Son of God did for you and for me, isn't it? If anyone was ever considerate, it was Jesus Christ considering us. Long before this passage, all the way back in Hebrews chapter 3, the author of Hebrews tells us to consider something else long before considering one another. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, he tells us, first of all, consider Christ. Think about Jesus. Stop, pause, meditate on what he's done and who he was, or who he is, rather. Meditate on his work in the past. Meditate on his self-sacrificial love poured out for you and for me throughout his entire life. Carefully reflect the one who didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. The one who came and considered you and me before himself. The one who allowed himself to be considered and condemned as a criminal on your behalf and mine. Think carefully about his imminent return any day now, when Christ makes everything new and wipes every tear from our eyes. Think about Christ and how he humbled himself and thought of us before himself. And then begin considering others before ourselves as he did for us. Specifically, the author says, don't just consider one another in general, but he says, consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Stir up one another. That is a fascinating word choice. Uh, because the command behind the word to stir up literally means to irritate one another. Finally, a command we can do, right? Irritate one another, bother one another, get on each other's nerves, agitate or provoke each other. It sounds, it sounds doable. We can irritate and provoke uh, one another, stir each other up in a lot of ways. If you know someone really well, well, then you probably know what this means. You know how to, to agitate them, right? You know how to stir them up. You can poke and prod them and get a rise out of them. So like kids, for example. Kids, do you know how to stir up and provoke your siblings? I bet you do. Adults, too. You know how to stir up your kids or your friends or your spouse. I bet if you know someone well, a friend or a family member or anyone else, you can think of things you can stay, say or, or buttons you can press to start to poke and prod at them and, and produce all kinds of things. You could produce anger, maybe. Maybe you know what buttons you could press to produce sorrow. Or maybe what buttons you could press to produce insecurity. You know how to get a rise out of people that you know and love. But the command here is for each and every one of us to carefully consider each other, where to start to poke and prod to stir up love and to stir up good works. Sometimes these, this can be a little bit uncomfortable. I think that's the point of the word here, poking and prodding and stirring up things. But sometimes that's exactly what we need. 
We need someone to come alongside of us and start poking us and prodding us and stirring up love. Love, first of all, for Jesus Christ. Love for our God. Sometimes that's exactly what we need to hear. And sometimes it's not going to be what we want to hear. Sometimes they need to come beside us and start uh, poking us and prodding us to stir up love and good works towards one another. To get us out of our apathy. And that's exactly what a lot of the Hebrew church was dealing with here. Because of the, the, the persecution, they wanted to just fall back, go to their homes, just do the bare minimum. But the author of Hebrews says, no, no, get in there and start poking and prodding, stirring up love and good works for God and for one another. Sometimes that can be a bit uncomfortable, and sometimes that's what we need. But sometimes, interestingly, that's not what we need. And I think the author of Hebrews seems to cover that too. He says to, to stir one another up, but then he goes on and says to also encourage one another. And the word encourage there, it's essentially the opposite of poking and prodding people. It's the poking and prodding one another, it's, it's agitating people who are apathetic, who are standing still. Encouraging one another, it's a word for comforting those who are agitated and who are upset. Literally, what that word means is coming alongside someone. And so, we need to pray for wisdom that we might know, we might understand who needs to be poked and prodded and spurred on. Who needs us just to come beside them and help them and carry them along. And again, we can see the perfect example of this only in one place. In Jesus Christ, can't we? We read Christ's words in the Bible and sometimes when we hear them, they poke and they prod at us, don't they? They shine a light on our sin, and they won't leave us in it. They agitate us, our conscience stirs us. They, they poke and prod sinful people like us, bringing us to him in repentance, and spurring us on to keep on growing in holiness. But the words of Christ and the works of Christ, they don't just stir us up. They also, at times, deeply comfort us. They come alongside us. They pick us up when we need a helping hand. We find that Christ himself is the one who's come alongside us and helped us and lifted us up when we need it. And we see this most clearly on the cross. There we see our immense sin and helplessness, a powerful and agitating call to hate sin more and more, to flee from sin, to pursue holiness as God is holy. The cross agitates our sinful hearts and calls for a response. Yet there on the cross, we see the Lord's great love and mercy. The Son of God, the promised Messiah's willing to come, willingness to come alongside us and identify us to comfort and save us. And then finally, just one more thing. The text addresses where especially do we do this stirring up of one another and this coming alongside of one another, sandwiched right in between those two words, the stirring up and the encouraging. There we read, the author of Hebrews says, don't neglect meeting together, as is the habit of some. And I don't know about you, and this is a really famous text, and I always heard uh, as I was growing up that this text basically means go to church. And I can tell you, after a week of study, that largely it means don't stop going to church. It's exactly what it sounds like. The author is primarily talking about the regular meeting, the regular assembling of the early Christian church. The author says, don't stop going to those. 
But we know primarily, there's no reason, or there, that, well, it's primarily talking about the regular weekly worship services. There's no reason to think he's excluding other meetings either, like care groups and Bible studies and, and just times having dinners and coffees with others in the church. We know in some instances back then, the church was said to meet daily. And God tells us through the author of the Hebrews, hold on to that. Don't give it up. Don't neglect these meetings. And in a sense, this makes sense, doesn't it? Where have you, if you think back on your life, maybe this past year or maybe uh, before that, what are times that you have been the most convicted and stirred up in your Christian life? When are times when you were down and you felt the most encouraged and lifted up? At least for myself, it's often be at the assemblies of the church. Whether that be at the regular worship service, or maybe it's just going out for a coffee with a brother or sister. Maybe it's at care groups, or small groups, or, or prayer groups. Those are often times when I was the most recharged, when whatever I needed, I found it was through that body that Christ gave it to me. When I was apathetic, he poked and prodded at me. When I was down and disheartened, he came alongside me and lifted me up through the assemblies. Martin Luther uh, the really famous reformer, a, a fiery, passionate preacher and theologian. He once said this was true of himself as well. He said, at home, in my own house, there's often no warmth or vigor in me. But in the church, when the magnitude is gathered together, a fire is kindled in my heart, and it breaks its way through. And likewise, for many of us, I'm sure the times we've been most stirred up, encouraged and comforted, is when we were gathered together with our church family in worship or Bible study or, or just in someone's home. And yet, what's interesting about this passage, there is something that I've never noticed before. The, the thrust, the message of this passage, actually isn't focused on why we go to worship for ourselves. The, the message of the passage doesn't seem to focus on you need to go to church because it's important for you. But look carefully at our text where this, this call not to neglect meeting together, what it's sandwiched between. The point of the passage is this. Go to church meetings and assemblies because it's important for others. Isn't that fascinating? Have you ever thought of going to church as an expression of your love, not just for God, not just your need to be stirred up and comforted, but you're going to church or to Bible study or what have you, as an expression of your love flowing out to others. That seems to be the focus here. Back in my old church, uh, my old pastor uh, started a really, really early morning prayer meeting. And when he first mentioned about it, I was completely uninterested. I, I don't like early mornings at all. And he mentioned to me a couple times in, in passing, a number of times actually, uh, that I should come. And I, I probably should have. Uh, he kept on poking me and prodding me, but that didn't work. It didn't get me out of bed uh, early in the morning. But then one day, that same pastor reached out, and he said, Tim, honestly, I really think you should come to prayer group. I think it would be a big blessing for the other men. Oh. Then I had to go, didn't I? And it worked. I started going to the regular prayer meetings. It got me out of bed the next week but it actually got me out of bed for the next few years. Because I went there and were the other men blessed and stirred up? I have no idea. I hope that my pastor was right and that it was a blessing for others. But when I went, 
hoping to be a blessing to others, I found out it was a great blessing for myself. And maybe you've had the same thing with Bible studies or just grabbing coffees or having meals with one another or just coming to church. I think this is a powerful, powerful way to see the new selfless way of life given to us by Christ. When's the last time when we were thinking, should I go to church, shouldn't I? What church should I go to? Should I go to Bible study? Where we didn't first think about ourselves and what we wanted to do, but we stopped and thought, we considered, we meditated on the needs of others. What would be the most helpful for stirring others up to love and good works? What would be the most helpful for coming alongside others? My old pastor, I believe, modeled this new selfless way of life given by Christ by giving ourselves to God and giving ourselves also to one another, basking in God's love for us and then loving others in response and all of our considerations and all of our actions because that's exactly what Christ did for us. And by the tearing of his flesh, he gave us a new and living way of coming to the Father, drawing near with confidence. He gave us an indestructible hope to hold on to. And he helps us to consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And all the more as we see the day of his return drawing near. Amen.